on this episode of American Thought Leaders. How dare they call themselves progressives? They are regressives. They are reactionaries. They are repressors. Alan Dershowitz is a Harvard Law School professor emeritus and one of the top constitutional lawyers in the country. A self-described liberal Democrat, he has been excoriated by the right and the left for defending highly unpopular public figures. People love me when I defend people they like, and they hate me when I defend people they don't like. The more unpopular you are, the more likely I am to want to defend you. Alan Dershowitz discusses his book, The Price of Principle, and shares his thoughts on COVID mandates, censorship, and the rise of anti-Semitism in America. You see these protests against Zionism by people who have no idea what Zionism is. You know, I've been a Zionist from the time I was born, all it meant is that the Jewish people, like every other people, have a right to a homeland. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Alan Dershowitz, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. Your book, uh, The Price of Principle, comes at the right time for me. These are exactly the kinds of questions I've been kind of struggling with. I mean, mainly what I've been wondering has been, has partisanship completely taken over? Has partisanship almost, in a sense, become principle? I would say partisanship has taken over, but it's utterly, utterly unprincipled partisanship. If you ever dare put principle before partisanship, you're canceled. Uh, your group won't have anything to do with you. Uh, you have to be 100% partisan no matter what the principles uh, are. I'll give you an example. Um, Caroline Kennedy's father wrote the famous book, Profiles and Courage. And I think I showed a little bit of courage defending President Trump in his impeachment, even though I'm a liberal Democrat and voted against him twice. And Caroline Kennedy said if she knew I'd been invited to this dinner party, she never would have come. Um, the library in Chilmark, Massachusetts, bastion of liberalism, canceled my speeches and stopped circulating my books, um, all because they don't like who I defended. And even though I vote the same way they vote, that's not good enough because I, quote, enabled President Trump by being one of his lawyers on behalf of the Constitution. That's how far we've gotten. Well, you, I think you say in the book that principles have become actually a weapon of war, so to speak, in partisanship. What do you mean? Well, people claim principle, uh, but they're using it in a partisan way. It's the opposite of principle. It's, you know, double speak. Um, today, you cannot be a principled person. Um, if you are a principled person, you'll be punished for it. Nobody wants principle. Nobody wants consistency. The Republicans are perfectly happy to say, oh, we're not going to allow uh, Merrick Garland to get a hearing uh, for the Supreme Court because it's eight months before the election. And then when a few weeks before the election, President Trump nominates uh, Justice Barrett, oh, that's fine. And, and you ask them, what's the principle? And the principle, they say, is because we can, because we can, we have the votes to do it. The Democrats do the same thing. They silence people. They attack people, particularly in academia today. I just learned last night that uh, I was having dinner with somebody who is the president of one of the city universities of New York. And she said that the City College of New York, where I went, went to Brooklyn College, the law school there has now voted unanimously. The faculty voted unanimously to boycott Israel and only uh, Israel. Uh, and they had as their primary speaker at graduation a guy who advocates terrorism against Israel, doesn't believe it's right to exist. I don't want to debate Israel here today, but if a student at that university 
dares to dissent from the faculty's unanimous vote, they're not going to get recommended for a job on Wall Street or for a clerkship. That's not education. That's propaganda. In 50 years of teaching at Harvard, I never once expressed a personal point of view in class. I taught the students how to think, not what to think. And today, classrooms are propaganda mills, and they're our future leaders. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you have a chapter in the book talking about uh, basically systemic racism, you know, just sort of an assessment. Are we still systemically racist? It just it made me think about this whole woke movement. And essentially, it is always almost partisanship masquerading as principle, isn't it? It is. Meritocracy is a dirty word. You can't use meritocracy. That's white supremacy. Uh, there has to be racial advantage. And but when there's racial advantage, there's racial disadvantage. Look at the Harvard case. Uh, who's suing Harvard? Uh, Asian students, because they're being discriminated against because of quotas for black students. And so that case is going up to the Supreme Court, which I think will decide it the right way. But you know what will happen? Universities will cheat. All the major universities will cheat. They will still have racial quotas, but they'll describe them, describe them as something else. Is that different from what the South did when it... Uh, totally avoided the Supreme Court's decision in desegregation. The South cheated, too. They pretended that they weren't segregating when they were. You know, universities shouldn't be cheating and shouldn't be uh, looking for ways to circumvent Supreme Court decisions, but I assure you they will. So do you see this as a form of racism, this, these Harvard quotas? No, I think, it's a, an, I think it's an attempt to eliminate racism, but it's a very, very awkward attempt, and uh, it introduces new elements of, of racism. It's not going to work in the end. Uh, we are not a systemically racist country. We're a systemically anti-racist country. When I grew up in the 1940s and 50s, we were a systemically racist, anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, anti-Latino country. And that changed dramatically in the 60s and 70s. When I graduated Yale Law School, first in my class, editor-in-chief of the Law Review and a potential Supreme Court law clerk, I didn't even get an interview except for one Wall Street firm. I applied to 32 Wall Street firms. They all turned me down. That was systemic racism. That doesn't exist in America today. Today we have sporadic racism, which the government tries very hard to overcome and sometimes overreacts. I mean, I think perhaps the most significant event in transforming America in the 21st century may well be the killing of George Floyd. Uh, that changed everything in corporations and media and universities. Look, we were right to have a reckoning about race and the killing of George Floyd was inexcusable and horrible. But the idea that that event transformed us so dramatically, look, the transformation was occurring. It was already on the way. But that one event changed it so quickly and so dramatically. And the result is not equality. The result is to introduce a new kind of inequality and an anti-meritocratic approach. Well, pe many people that I've spoken with have argued that this basically allowed this, you know, illiberal, um, I guess, movement that you describe in multiple ways in the book um, basically to just kind of come out. It was, the, it was the opportunity to kind of codify it, to make it official. No, I think that's right. Look, I think left radical people from communists in the 
30s and 40s to today's woke generation look for opportunities. They find events and therefore they can use it to present their narrative and to project their agenda. Uh, and, and the thing that's so hard about it is they're often right. Um, these are decent people, many of them. The ones who now want to impose censorship on universities, I tend to agree with a lot of their substantive points of view. I just don't agree with the means. They don't care about means. They think the ends justify the means. Their utopia is going to be achieved. And we don't need the barriers of equal protection, due process, free speech. Why do you need free speech if you know the truth with a capital T? What do you need due process if you already know that a man who is accused by a woman, of course, is guilty? Why do we need to have a trial? Um, you may have seen just the other day um, the prosecution agreed in that case that was on serial uh, for many months uh, to release the guy who had been in jail, wrongly convicted for so many years. But, you know, and the left loves that when somebody who they identify with is released. But they don't want to apply the same due process standards to President Trump or to a white person who was accused of oppressing blacks. Look, I don't like when that happens, but I'll defend anybody who the government is after. The more unpopular you are, the more likely I am to want to defend you. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Marcuse's principle of repressive tolerance? As you're saying all this, this is what I'm thinking about. Oh, very much so. I grew up with that. Uh, he was at Brandeis University when I started at Harvard University. And, you know, he was a neo-fascist of the left. Uh, and uh, he was one of the first academics who justified um, censorship, justified repression. Um, he said over and over again, there's no reason to let them have their ideas expressed. We know we're right. This was part of the so-called Berlin School of whatever. Uh, it, it, uh, it's interesting because although it was grew out of anti-Nazism, it turned into its own form of fascism. So Marcuse was kind of the godfather of the, of the woke repressionist movement. And how dare they call themselves progressives? They are regressives. They are reactionaries. They are repressors. They want to stop due process and free speech and equal protection. I just, I think you mean the Frankfurt School, is that right? Yes, that's what okay. I meant. Wonderful. Um, I'm, there's three principles that have dominated your life. I'm just going to read them because I found this very, very valuable. Um, number one, freedom of expression and conscience. Number two, due process, fundamental fairness, and the adversary system of seeking justice. And I want to kind of get into that a little bit because I think it's very underappreciated what, what, why this is so critical. And three, you know, basic equality and meritocracy. And, you know, basically you argue that these three things are fundamental. The moment you dispense with one of them, things fall apart. Yes. And the one that's the most unpopular today is the adversary system. Uh, if you want to appreciate defense lawyers like me, go to Iran, go to the Soviet Union, go to Russia, go to China, go to Cuba, where people can't get defenses. Don't wish for things that you don't want. And, you know, uh, People just say, I'm such a horrible person because I defended O.J. Simpson. I defended Leona Helmsley. I defended so-and-so. Uh, -so. Uh, yeah, and I'm going to continue to do that just the way John Adams defended those who were accused of the Boston Massacre. And uh, Abraham Lincoln defended unpopular people. Clarence Darrow did. Thurgood Marshall did. It's the essence of our system, and yet it's very unpopular. People love me when I defend people they like. 
And they hate me when I defend people they don't like. People walk up to me in the street and say, we used to like you and respect you. Now we're so disappointed. And I say to them, you were wrong ever to respect me or like me. I was never on your side. I was on the side of due process and justice and civil liberties. Back in the day, they came out on your side. But today, the victims of due process and civil liberties often are Republicans, conservatives, Christians, Jews, um, people who are not popular with the woke generation. Uh, I'm also going to read something quickly, which I pulled from the book. I thought it was the most powerful quote that I hadn't been aware of. Um, H.L. Mencken, uh, the trouble with fighting for human freedom is that, that one spends most of one's time defending scoundrels, for it is against scoundrels that oppressive laws are first aimed, and oppression must be stopped at the beginning if it is to be stopped at all. Wow. I think that every day when I'm accused of defending Donald Trump. In many ways, Donald Trump is a scoundrel. Um, I don't agree with him. I voted against him. Um, if he committed a crime, I would want to see him impeached or go to prison. Uh, but, but I'm not rooting for him. But I don't want to see the laws applied against him. And so many civil libertarians now want to expand the criminal law for, give you an example. There's a statute called the Espionage Act of 1917, the most hated law for liberals. Eugene V. Debs, they got. They got Dr. Spock under it. They got uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg. Liberals all said, oh, my God, you got to abolish that statute. Now you have the New York Times and liberals editorializing in favor of expanding that statute and applying it broadly to Donald Trump's or sedition statutes. They were used against, you know, anarchists and communists in the 1910s and 20s. Now they wanted to be used against people who participated in January 6th. Now, I'm opposed to what happened on January 6th, but I'm more opposed to using sedition laws to try to get them. This was a protest that got out of hand, uh, a violent protest that shouldn't have happened. But don't overreact by keeping people in prison for months without a trial and charging them as some people want to do with sedition. My former colleague, Lawrence Tribe, has suggested that the Attorney General of the United States should prosecute Donald Trump for attempting to murder Vice President Pence. My God, what would that do to the rule of law? There's no law of attempts that would apply to that. Tribe is making it up. But he's willing to make it up if it's part of Get Trump. By the way, that's my next book, Get Trump, and how the attempt to get Trump is destroying civil liberties and human rights in America. Well, and, and I, I want to cover that a little bit because I, I want to sort of tackle some of you. You have, you know, views on the election, views on free speech, and these things kind of come together around Trump. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Before we get there, I just want to finish this piece. You make, you said you're on the side of justice, um, and but you also make this really interesting distinction. You cite Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, and, and how he says, well, no, I'm on the, we're on the side of law. We're not on the side of justice. And so... That isn't necessarily obvious why these things are not the same. Give you an example. Today, to convict somebody, you have to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. What if he is guilty, but there's no evidence of reasonable doubt? Um, and so you get a guilty person going free. That's not justice. That's the law. That's a good law. Better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly convicted. That's a good law. Emanates from the Bible, from Abraham's arguments with God over the sinners of Saddam, uh, but it's not justice, and uh, I have produced injustice 
on some occasions. I, yes, I have occasionally gotten guilty people off. I don't lose any sleep when I do that. Let me tell you when I lose sleep, when I get an innocent person convicted. That's only happened a very, very few times in my life. But it has destroyed me because then I say it's my fault. If, you know, if a guilty person is set free, that's part of our system. Better 10 go free. But if an innocent person is convicted, I can't deal with that. It's so hard. That's why I fight so hard against that happening. It's foundational that you follow the law and you don't make exceptions. That's right. Now, look, you can have lawless law. If I were living in Nazi Germany, I wouldn't follow the law. But we live under a country of law, and uh, our legal system is a good one. It doesn't always produce the right results. Um, I'm not Socrates. I wouldn't drink the hemlock. Um, uh, there is a room for civil disobedience. My grandfather, give you a terrible, wonderful example. My grandfather was poor as a church mouse. Uh, he had no resources, lived in a small place, and found out he had 28 relatives in Birno, Czechoslovakia on the eve of the Nazi invasion. And he went around to every neighbor and said, you have a basement? That's now a synagogue. You need a rabbi. You need a cantor. Had 28 false affidavits and saved the lives of 28 people from Nazi Germany. It was the proudest moment in his life. And if you ask me what, among all the people in my family who have done wonderful things, I admire most, it's my grandfather's illegality in helping bring 28 people. And those 28 people are now among the most accomplished Americans. Uh, one of them was chairman of the Department of Engineering at Columbia. Another one is a major investor with medical technology. Another is a rabbi in Los Angeles. Another is a public relations person. These are great Americans. And they were brought out of the Holocaust by an illegal act, which is why I tend to be sympathetic with uh, Im immigrants who will do anything to come to America to save, to save themselves from prosecution. Another case that you mentioned in the book then is uh, the case of Jesse Smollett. If I, if I recall correctly, his case was dismissed at one point, um, and it was dismissed presumably based on some kind of principle, even though the, the law definitely didn't suggest it should be dismissed. That's why it got relitigated subsequently. But, but the fact that it was dismissed, I, and I, I just want to be clear, I wholly support the action you just described, but I'm imagining that the prosecutor that's dropping the charges is imagining to themselves following some sort of principle that's greater than the law when they're doing this. For example, dismissing the case against Smollett. Yeah, but the principle there was one that they would be embarrassed to articulate because it was based completely on improper considerations like, like race. Look, the real villain there was Don Lemon, who got just recently got fired by CNN, but didn't get fired soon enough. He was a very close friend of Smollett, and he gave him legal advice about how to not give the phone to the police and never disclosed it. When uh, he interviewed him on television, objectively, whereas Chris Cuomo was fired, and I have a chapter in my book about CNN, CNN doctored a tape of mine, doctored a tape, had me say exactly the opposite. I said a president could be and should be impeached if he committed criminal behavior or criminal-like behavior, and they had me saying a president can't be impeached even if he commits criminal behavior, even murder. And therefore, I'm like Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini. That's why I'm suing CNN for their unprincipled distortion of what I had to say. I believe strongly in the First Amendment, but the First Amendment doesn't give the media the right to make up, make up defamatory stories in order to serve their partisan interests. 
When you realized that tape was doctored, what was your reaction? I couldn't believe it because I had been a guest on CNN uh, many, many, many times. But as soon as I defended Trump, my status changed. And I knew that. and That's okay. They're a network with an agenda. But for them to doctor a tape like this, to take my words out, I used the words in my answer on the Senate floor, unlawful, illegal, corrupt, to define what would constitute impeachable offense. They took those three words out as if they took a scissors and just snipped them out and had me had had commentators saying, oh, Dershowitz says a president can do anything. It's unlawful, illegal, or corrupt. When I said exactly the opposite. So I sued him. I hate to sue. I never sued anybody in my life until I was 75 years old. And now I'm involved in three lawsuits. So I think you mentioned if I let's see if I recall correctly, but you said you said there are three things that you did that you think basically put you on the other side, you know, from being like one of the top legal minds, generally agreed being one of the top legal minds in the nation to being some kind of uh, pariah among in, in certain social circles and so forth. Okay, representing Trump was number one. And that put me at the quote, margins of academia. Um, um, CNN contributed to that by distorting what I had to say. Number two is representing Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, which I did and got him a good deal. He didn't like the deal, but most people think it was too good a deal. And the third, as the result of re representing Jeffrey Epstein, I was accused by a woman named Virginia Gouffre, who I never met, never heard of, of having sex with her on seven occasions, uh, including in front of my house uh, in a limousine in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in places that I never was during the relevant time uh, period. Her own lawyer admitted on tape that she was, quote, wrong, simply wrong. Her other lawyer admitted that she was wrong. There were emails we discovered that they tried to suppress that admitted she never knew me, and yet people believe it. Uh, but it's interesting, different people. The people on the liberal left, Martha's Vineyard, they don't believe the charges against me sexually. They only attack me because of the Trump business. Others don't attack me on the Trump business, but attack me because if I've been accused, I must be guilty. I wrote another book on that called Guilt by Accusation, where I document clearly how it's impossible for me to have ever been uh, in the same place uh, where she was under the circumstances she suggests, including, as I say, sex in a limousine in Cambridge, Massachusetts with two women. Uh, I mean, she just has a phenomenal imagination, but I've clearly proved her to be a serial liar, and I'm suing her now, she's suing me, and it will be resolved in court. We live in this time, and again, you note this uh, quite quite well, I think, where identity plays a role in ascribing guilt or innocence. And this is sort of, you know, kind of infected almost uh, kind of all areas of inquiry in a sense. Are you seeing this? Look, the ACLU is dead in the water now. They don't defend people uh, on college campuses from being denied a free speech or due process. They've become a partisan political organization for the most part. Alan, I want to switch gears a little bit and go into, you wrote a book, The Case for Vaccine Mandates. You know, this is something that I've been following very closely. It's based on the idea that the vaccines need to reduce the spread of the virus for there to be a case for, their, uh, uh, for mandates, right? That's it, right. Look, if you invented a new vaccine that could immediately stop all heart attacks, all cancer, all diabetes, I would be opposed to the government requiring you to take it. I would urge you to take it, but I would not allow the government to take it because under John Stewart Mill principles, 
the only way the government can force you to do something is to prevent harm to others. Now, if there is, however, a vaccine, even if it doesn't help you, that helps the spread, prevents the spread of a deadly disease, um, there I would allow the government as a last resort to compel you to take it. George Washington, I, I own a letter uh, written in the hand of Alexander Hamilton, dictated by George Washington, in which he urges his commanders to make every soldier in the American Revolutionary War get vaccinated against smallpox. He essentially says, we're not going to lose to the Brits, but we might lose to smallpox. But I agree with you that the key point is the vaccine has to prevent contagion. And that burden hasn't been yet satisfied with at least the earlier uh, vaccines. The current new vaccine claims that it does prevent the spread. That's a scientific fact. And we'll have to wait and see whether it's borne out by the research. Well, and, but this is sort of the, there's this question, right? Like, for example, I can imagine the people that were very pro-mandate at the beginning would grab Alan Dershowitz's book and be like, hey, look, Alan Dershowitz says that there is a case for mandates and so forth. Whereas, you know, as, as we know, this, you know this, these uh, genetic vaccines certainly didn't uh, uh, stop the spread. And in some cases, you know, some of the research now is showing that they're actually promoting viral replication as opposed to the opposite. Here's the thing I want to get that. When information is suppressed, because early on we were told yeah. by pundits mostly and politicians that the vaccines would stop the spread, um, but there was a suppression of information and, you know, a quelling of vo voices of scientists who were actually seeing through serious research that it was the opposite. Like, how do we deal with this sort of thing in a legal framework? Well, it's very hard. And I was completely against trying to censor. I was willing to debate Robert Kennedy, who I disagreed with. Uh, nobody else was willing to debate him. We had a really good, uh, good debate uh, about these issues. Um, look, science is science, and it should never be suppressed. I wrote a piece in March of 2020 saying, believe science, be skeptical of scientists. Back then, in March of 2020, scientists were making two claims. Um, number one, they were saying that the virus is not spread by aerosol, it's only spread by touching. And number two, they were saying, don't buy masks, masks are no good, they don't stop you. The second one, they were making a deliberate lie. They knew that masks were good because the doctors were using them. Uh, they just didn't want us, the non-doctors, to hoard the masks, and so they were willing to mislead us. As to the first, I wrote a, in my piece, I said, you're just demonstrably wrong. If the, if the virus spread by touching, it would spread much more slowly. Touching is not something that induces quick spreads. Obviously, it has to be something that comes from aerosol. And, you know, I was proved correct in both instances, but I was so criticized when I wrote that article because how dare you challenge the medical establishment? Well, I did, and you did, and others did. That's a healthy way to go. I still promote um, vaccination for people who choose to have it, but unless and until it's proved that it really spreads can. Uh, prevents the spread of contagion, I would be reluctant to go to the ultimate step. Government force should always be used only as a last resort and only after all other alternatives are tried and only if the justification is clear. And uh, th there is Supreme Court precedent allowing it probably, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing. Well, you know, so we did a very, very thorough literature review around mask use now. Um, you know, there's many, many, many papers now that have tried to address this both in sort of in, in vivo and in vitro, so to speak. 
And uh, uh, there's a very marginal benefit of masks that aren't sort of fully sealed, the, the, the N95 versions and so forth. There are still places that enforce these kind of vaccine mandates and on the other, or sorry, uh, mask mandates. And, but, but then on the other hand, um, you also have uh, governors, like for example, Governor Ron DeSantis expressly kind of prohibiting, say, municipal units of government from creating these sorts of mandates, whether they be vaccine or mask. And what are your thoughts? Well, I don't like governors telling cities uh, what to do. I think that uh, governors should have limited power. They don't make the law. Uh, they enforce the law. Uh, we're in a, a period of, of relative uncertainty. I, you know, I carry around my N5 mask, whatever, every day. I wear it. I put it on right. I seal it. Thank God I want to cross my fingers. I haven't gotten COVID. I'm 84 years old with some medical conditions. So I try very hard to avoid that. I was at a scientific event the other night, um, and there were about 100 world-famous scientists, and I was the only one wearing a mask. Um, and uh, so obviously, either scientists aren't sure or they're willing to risk themselves in order to have better social interaction. But I continue to wear the mask. I'm entitled to make that decision. I'm probably not entitled to impose it on you. But let's take, for example, sitting on an airplane and you're sitting next to me. Um, I wear my mask. Am I entitled to tell you to put on a mask if you're sitting next to me and if the mask would reduce more than me wearing a mask alone, you wearing a mask too would help reduce the amount. I think if I ask politely I am, I'm not sure I'm entitled to compel you to wear the mask. These are hard questions and uh, it's a work in progress. And I commend people who take varying points of view on this and let the debate continue. I don't want to see a singular point of view. I would like to see more people be very conservative on this. That is, wear the mask, take the vaccine, when in doubt, you know, uh, do that. But uh, government compulsion is not something I'm in favor of. Actually, the title of my book, Case for the Vaccine Mandate, was a little misleading. Um, I think it should have been the case for the vaccine mandate under the right conditions as a last resort. But book, books with titles like that don't sell. So my publisher shortened the title. Well, and there's this other element uh, to these vaccines, especially genetic vaccines. It's a new technology, first time it's really been deployed, and certainly the first time it's been deployed on the scale that it has. And so one of the big sort of concerns that people have had is this, you know, right to informed consent around medications, and that this was kind of largely hidden from the public, like the potential harms or the, even the known harms that, you know, have come out through FOIAs and so forth. Uh, uh, that, for example, from the Pfizer documents that, that we've, been, we've been looking at? Everybody should be fully advised, fully informed, even if the information hurts the narrative of the government, and even if it results in fewer people being vaccinated, uh, information should never be suppressed in the name of agenda. So I'm completely in favor of making sure that all the information is always released. And, you know, you make a distinction between your personal view and the legal view. I find that very interesting and actually valuable to consider even that you make that distinction. So, you know, what does the law have to say on a situation where information like this is withheld? Like, and, and at multiple levels, it could be withheld, you know, by, by companies which, which uh, stand to profit. It could be withheld 
by, say, big tech. Uh, it could be withheld by media in general. And you have a chapter in the book talking about you know, media taking incredibly partisan positions or very convenient positions for whatever reasons they have. So where, where does the law stand on this? And how, how does one deal with this, especially if it turns out that there's very serious harms, personal harms that were caused by a situation of withholding such information by various parties? The law makes uh, a tripartite distinction, basically. There's the government. The government shouldn't withhold anything except material essential to the national security, uh, names of spies, uh, locations of nuclear weapons. That's the government. Uh, second, there are kind of quasi-governmental uh, organizations like the FDA that control private companies uh, drug area companies, and uh, that halfway between government and private. And then there are purely private companies where the government has very little control over what's disseminated, except if it's fraudulent. And even if it's fraudulent, if they're not on the stock market and if they're not selling certain materials, um, just lying to the public, unfortunately, is, is, not, is not a crime. Um, you know, that case was tried recently in the Theranos case, where um, both Theranos people who were in charge got convicted. Unfortunately, the lawyer escaped liability, uh, who, who should have been convicted, in my view. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's really a work in progress. Just today, some courts rendered decisions about the freedom of the internet and whether the internet can make rules about censoring materials. This is probably the most interesting and difficult free speech question of the 21st century. And I'm, I'm glad to be involved in it. I don't have a simple-minded solution, obviously. The presumption is in favor of letting it out speech. Then it has to be overcome by very strong arguments on the other side. Well, I want to ask you about one specific case in a moment, actually, but I'm going to ask, ask you one more thing. In the typical situation where there is a novel virus people don't know how to deal with, deal with it, what will happen typically is doctors will go out and try to find ways to treat it based on you know, the, pre the, the utility and the safety of the various drugs that, that they may be testing. There's particularly famous or infamous, depending who you are, uh, uh, drugs of nature. But right now, there's a, something like 20 or 30 different therapeutics that can be used to treat COVID early and so forth. Some of them are licensed in here. Some of them are in other countries. It's a whole big mix, OK? Here's my question. Um, there was an inordinate focus on uh, using vaccines to deal with the virus. And that has its own issues because coronaviruses mutate so much. We, I'm not going to go into the details, but it, it's a questionable thing whether vaccines are the optimal thing for a highly mutable virus, okay? Now, at the same time, there's people were looking at various therapeutics and they found various levels of efficacy and, and so forth. If there's evidence that there was deliberate intent to basically prevent therapeutics from being used for some reason, for whatever reason, against this disease, ones which showed promise at the very least and over time, you know, showed efficacy in, a cl in clinical trials. Um, how does the law deal with something like that? Is there some, some way to uh, address this? Because it, it would seem to be a huge problem. It's a huge problem, and the law does not adequately address it because that doesn't involve producing a product that's fraudulent. Look, we know there have been some very good therapies. 
I know people who have been involved in the development of some of these therapeutics that work and and everybody should know about them all and should have access to them. And believe me, if I got COVID, that's the first thing I would do is call my friend and say, uh, what what um, uh, should I take? Um, everybody wants the best medical care. And, and the government has a role to play, but it shouldn't be the role of kind of medical dictator and medical czar. Let's jump to this free speech issue. You know, the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals recently reversed this federal district court ruling that was blocking the implementation of the Texas law, HB 20. Are you familiar with this? Not by name, but tell me about it, probably. Texas can implement this law that prevents social media networks from censoring users based on ideology, based on their politics and so forth. So that was blocked by the federal district court. And now that block has been rescinded by the Fifth Circuit. You said this is one of the most difficult areas, right, that, that we have to face right now. So explain to me why this is so difficult. Because it's private people and the private companies, big as they are, they're claiming their First Amendment right to decide what to put on their platforms. And they're claiming the right to censor. Now, you know, Jefferson, Hamilton, and Madison would be turning over in their graves if they thought that giant private companies could do what the government can't do, and that is censor. Now, there have been some theories that have been proposed, the theory of kind of common carrier. Uh, if you're a train, uh, even if you're owned by a private company, if you're a telegraph company, whatever that is now, uh, there's, there's no such thing. But back in the day, telegraph companies were, even though they were private, regulated by the law. And I think there is a case to be made. There are cases on both sides of this. But there's a case to be made that, you know, Google and Facebook and uh, Twitter and others have become common carriers and maybe are subject to some regulation. Uh, but you don't want to give the government too much power uh, over these uh, companies either. Imagine if we had a totalitarian country with a, a tyrant uh, being able to control Google, uh, etc. You'd want them to be free. So. These are such hard questions, the kind of thing I would you know, spend a whole semester on if I was still back teaching at Harvard, where I was for 50 years. You know, when these comp the, the biggest ones are effectively almost infrastructure, very much like a phone system, um, you know, they can become the tyrant instead. Or, or yep. both can become tyrants, which is an incredibly troubling proposition. But, you know, it's less troubling if each becomes a tyrant and they're against each other. So that at least gives the two tyrants the opportunity to fight with each other. The worst possibility is if there's only one tyrant or if the government takes over everything. That's why there is some con concern about it. Um, look at what's going on in Russia today, where obviously um, the government is controlling the media. They're not doing a particularly good job. By the way, it's become much harder for governments to control the media. Uh, China, Iran, they try hard, but with the internet and with other methods of communications, now things things sneak out. When I was representing dissidents in the Soviet Union back in the 70s, um, they would circulate what was called samizdat. That is, they would take a pamphlet and they would type it, and they'd make 10 copies, the 10th you probably couldn't read, just by carbon paper, and then they would distribute them. That was their method of circumventing a censorship. Today, of course, we have more high-tech methods of doing it, and it's a continuing war. And I think it's a, it's a, it, it's a war with some positive uh, consequences, 
uh, for free speech because it means that there isn't one unit anywhere that controls everything. And that's the key to avoiding tyranny. That is a hugely valuable point. I'll just read you know, this from the court's opinion. Today, we reject the idea that corporations have a freewheeling First Amendment right to censor what people say. So that's, that's at the Fifth Circuit now. I guess it's going to go up the chain. I think so. Uh, that's a, a, a statement that Jefferson would probably agree with. Um, you know, I own a letter from Thomas Jefferson in his own hand, written on the eve of the 25th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence when he was president, talking about the importance of free speech, how nothing should be censored as long as there's the opportunity to correct errors. And of course, on the internet, it's not so easy. When CNN defamed me, it went all over the world. Um, and when I tried to say no, they, they they edited the tape. Yeah, I got, you know, page 28 or uh, two minutes at the end of a TV show. But uh, by that time, the damage had been done. This quote's been attributed to Winston Churchill and many others. But, you know, lies get halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its shoes on. That was before the Internet. And with the Internet, of course, that's that's clear. The same thing happens with accusations. The false accusation of mine became a front page story. And the proof, conclusive proof that I couldn't have done any of the things I was alleged to do hardly gets covered. No, absolutely. And actually, we now we're getting to this, the sort of a, a case in point, so to speak. And I'm going to be talking about the Hunter Biden laptop censorship here. So we've got, you know, we've got elected government, we've got this unelected bureaucracy, big tech, legacy media, all kind of uh, telling the story in the same direction. I'll kind of lay out a couple of things, I think, which are relevant. So first of all, late 2019, the FBI collects the laptop, verifies it, knows it's real, is sitting on it for its own reasons. Um, you know, later we have uh, Zuckerberg telling us that the FBI has told Facebook to watch out for Russian disinformation just prior to the New York Post publishing on the Hunter Biden laptop. Um, after this publication, we've got five past CIA directors and numerous, numerous kind of, uh, let's say, well-known people in the establishment that are saying that this laptop has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Um, and this is, of course, all you know before the election. Now, fast forward to today, everyone agrees the Hunter Biden laptop is real and what's on there is, is accurate. Um, you have people like Jack Dorsey saying it was a mistake to do this censorship. Um, so wh what is your take here? It's always a mistake to do censorship. Always let the story play out. Uh, we never know what the truth is and what it's not, particularly in the context of Russia, and the context of American elections, in the context of partisan media, nobody should censor any of this. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what the answer is. Um, there seems to be enough to raise a level of suspicion, but I wanna hear all sides of the issue. And I don't wanna be told by big media or by the government, no, uh, this doesn't deserve to be aired. Uh, look, I voted for Joe Biden. I support Joe Biden. I'd like to see him reelected if he runs. But I want the truth to come out about his son in a laptop. I think that's more important than who gets elected. Well, okay, but let, let's go back a little bit. I mean, you're, I think in the book, you, and numerous times you said you feel the election was free and fair. And let's, no, so no, let's. No. No, no, I didn't say that. I said the results of the election were correct. I think there were problems with the election. I think Pennsylvania acted unconstitutionally. I think there are questions about voting machines. I think there are questions about uh, 
mail-in ballots, um, I think we have to make sure that the next elections are beyond reproach. But I have not seen any evidence that would support the conclusion that Donald Trump was elected rather than that Joe Biden was elected. So my views are a little bit more complicated. That's actually great for me to understand. But I want to sort of move all that aside, like all the stuff around machines or whether the votes were cast properly or not. Let's just take all that aside. I think you could argue convincingly that this Hunter Biden laptop revelation was supposed to be like the October surprise you know, basically for the side of the Republicans. And indeed, if uh, if there's been, you know, polls done on this and so forth, if people understood that this was a real thing and knew that it existed at all, in, in many cases, they might have voted differently. Does this constitute a form of election interference? What does the law have to say about this? Or is doing stuff like this perfectly legit, where you have all these massive institutions essentially telling the states the same story, which turns out to be false? Well, We'll we'll find out. Truth, falsity, somewhere in between gray, we don't know. But the law doesn't protect against false information that impacts the election. We know that the election of 2020 may very well have been impacted by James Comey's ill-advised statement about uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, and everybody always expects October surprises. And it's in the nature of the media. Why do we say October? Because if they do it in October, it's too late to correct in November. So the Justice Department has a rule that says we don't make public announcements generally on the eve of an election because they could impact the election. The media has the opposite rule. We go out of our way generally to make disclosures that could impact the election. And then you have finally the selective uh, media. We won't make disclosures if they don't help our favorite candidate, if they hurt our favorite candidate. So that's what we have to be worried about. But the law doesn't really have anything to say about it, unfortunately. You've seen all these huge institutions essentially effectively work in concert. We don't know exactly how it happened. We were seeing some resolution due to FOIA emails and so forth around this. But are there no remedies? Is this is this something that could happen again? Like, how does I find this very troubling, right? It is troubling. It can happen again. And the answer has to be the court of public opinion, that the all the sides have to be given an opportunity to make their view, make their view strongly and try to persuade the public. Uh, it becomes a, a strong issue in a political campaign that the other side is suppressing information. But I think to allow the law to come in and tell the media what to do would be difficult. And of course, government is different. The government shouldn't be selectively suppressing. But if they, on all sides, say we're not going to make disclosures within months of an election, that that may be fair. But they can't do it selectively. I understand your position on the on the election now. And that's it's good. It's I understand it's it's nuanced. But this this kind of activity, which has nothing to do with specific ballots, but it does have it has everything to do with influencing public opinion. It kind of precludes from pe people from being able to see, you know, uh, the uh, both sides of the issue, for lack of a better term. And so this is the issue that's concerning to me. Let's go back um, several years earlier um, when um, uh, then businessman Donald Trump was trying to influence the election of um, Barack Obama by falsely claiming 
that he was not eligible to run for president. I mean, it was false on two grounds. First, he wasn't born in Kenya. He was born in Hawaii. And second, if he could have been born on the moon or in Kenya or in communist China, he'd still be eligible to run because his mother was a citizen. And that makes him a natural born citizen. So it was wrong in every regard. What should the media do with something like that? We know that a story like that might influence the outcome of the election, but it's patently false. And so we don't want the government to come in and say, here's the distinction. One story is true. One story is false. The last thing we want is the government to determine truth or falsity. My view is that all these stories ought to come out. Let the public judge them. And that's what happened with the Obama argument. It went out there. It was in the public. People showed documents. And in the end, most people disbelieved it. Okay. And, and when the government is, appears to be putting its finger on the scale here, how do we deal with that? that well, then you can, you can file lawsuits. Uh, you can bring legislation. I want to finally talk about this uh, element of uh, systemic racism that we discussed a bit earlier. You know, is the yeah. U.S. a systemically racist country? Well, you, you, you argue no because of these changes that we discussed earlier. But there appears to be, and there's, I think, lots of uh, evidence to this, uh, that, that anti-Semitism is very much on the rise in this country. Anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, what is the relationship? Some people say that Zionism itself is you know, a huge problem. Um, I wanted to give, give you a chance to kind of talk a little bit about this because I know you have a, some very good thoughts on it. There was a very good program now on television by Ken Burns about the role of America during the Holocaust. And it was so clear that America in the 20s and 30s was a systemically anti-Semitic country. Jews weren't allowed to work in Wall Street. They weren't allowed to work in law firms. They weren't allowed to live in neighborhoods. And the government stood behind it. They weren't allowed to go to certain clubs. That was pure anti-Semitism. And that basically disappeared with the Second World War. What's come up after that, largely the result of people from the hard left, like the Berrigan brothers and Noam Chomsky and, and uh, others, is that there's a new disguise for anti-Semitism. It's called anti-Zionism. Um, I remember when one of the prominent black leaders, Stokely Carmichael, said that Zionists are selling us rotten meat in Harlem. Now, what does that mean? There are no Zionists in Harlem to speak of. They were, you know, Jewish butchers, and he didn't like them, so he called them Zionists, and that protected him from attack. And and we see uh, arguments that Zionists have too much control over the American media. You know, the New York Times an anti-Zionist uh, newspaper, Washington Post is certainly not pro-Zionist. So uh, so Zionism becomes a euphemism for Jew. And But you say I'm anti-Zionist, you can get away with it because that's political. That's not racial. Um, and um, um, uh, you know, Zionism is a, is a great thing uh, in my mind. I've been a Zionist from the time I was born. All it meant is that the Jewish people, like every other people, have a right to a homeland. Um, uh, Zionism has nothing to do with displacing Palestinians. You can be a strong Zionist as I am who believe in the two-state solution and believes there should be a, a Palestinian state. If there were a word for Palestinian Zionism, I would be one of those too. I, I favor a Palestinian state as long as it's peaceful and non-terrorist and doesn't uh, demand the end of Israel's existence. But uh, at universities around the world, and I know I speak at them all the time, uh, you see these protests against Zionism by people who have no idea what Zionism is. And now, add to that is the claim of identity politics. Look, Jews are 
uh, white, they're wealthy, well, which is a myth, of course, they're not white. Jews in Israel, for example, uh, there, there are many uh, dark-skinned people, black people, Ethiopian people, people from North Africa, and Jews aren't rich. Uh, some are, uh, but the Jewish religion isn't anywhere comparable to other religions in terms of richness. So you have all these myths being circulated, and uh, and and you try to fight them. I, I go on campuses, I try to fight them. I've been canceled by many campuses, partly as the result of that. Well, and the, the question is, where does this come from? I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I just had Nicole Ladlett on the show. She's a, a lawyer with WA, one of the biggest, you know, domestic, anti-domestic abuse organizations in the country. And they were, you know, basically promoting some social justice uh, related activities there. And she emailed an article about anti-Semitism um, in the social justice movement about it, basically saying, hey, we should cover this as well since we're talking about racism and the like. And in response, she got a ton of disapproving emails accusing her of furthering white supremacy. So how does pointing out that there's anti-Semitism in the social justice movement promote further white supremacy? Well, it doesn't, of course. It's part of intersectionality. Uh, every group should work together except the Jews. Uh, the Jews are white, they're rich, they're supreme, they're, you know, for, for anti-Semites, Jews are hated because they're communists and they're hated because they're capitalists. They're hated because they're uh, sexually impotent and weak men, they're hated because they're sexually aggressive and strong men. If, if you hate a group, you can come up with any ideas uh, uh, for them. Uh, look, Israel in the 70-something years of its existence has contributed more to humankind than any country in the history of the world of a similar size in a similar time in terms of medicine, biology, physics, uh, literature, you name it. It's a miracle. They renewed a language that never existed before. They've taken in refugees from around the world. Are they a perfect country? Of course, they're not a perfect country. But to, to single out um, Israel, look, you say, oh, but Israel took over land that uh, may have had Palestinians. Of course, Jews lived there originally. New Zealand is 10,000 times worse. Not a single person who's now in New Zealand in terms of the dominant culture had anything to do with that island. They came from England. And what did they do with the Maori? They killed them and they marginalized them. Uh, but New Zealand is now at the UN constantly berating Israel for the way it treated the Palestinians. Um, and so this double standard is so rampant around the world, and I'm fighting against it as a point to principle. One of the reasons I wrote my book, The Price of Principle, is to also get into this issue. And, and you know, many of the social movements, the Women's March was headed by a virulent anti-Semite. Uh, Black Lives Matter was uh, headed by anti-Semitic people. The, 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 the Million Man watch on, March on Washington. Uh, had Farrakhan as one of its uh, sponsors. Well, uh, Alan, congratulations on the price of principle on the book. I guess the, the final question really is, are we forever condemned to be living in this uh, partisanship that really so dominates a lot of discourse, uh, including like even within families? I noticed in the book you mentioned that foundationally in the family, you say, no, my loyalty to the family comes first, even ahead of, of, of some of these other things. But even in the family, in many cases now, there's this kind of partisanship and people not talking to each other. What's the way out here? Well, there's no clear way out. The pendulum tends to swing pretty widely in the United States, less widely than in Europe. You know, in Europe in the 30s, 
there were only two choices, communism and fascism, uh, or communism and Nazism. In the United States, we had Roosevelt, the New Deal, compromises. We've been a nation of compromises uh, over the years. Even the debates leading to the Civil War tried to reach compromises. They couldn't uh, over that. Um, sometimes we've done better, sometimes we've done worse. I think this trend toward the new McCarthyism on the hard left is going to be enduring because it's being taught in universities today to our future leaders. So I see it having a longer pendulum swing than many of the other things. McCarthyism lasted 10 years. Um, I think left-wing McCarthyism will last many, many years longer than that. So I'm not optimistic. I'm going to end with a, a the description of pessimist and optimist in Israel. In Israel, a pessimist is somebody who says, Oy vey, things are so bad they can't get worse. The optimist says, yes, they can. And uh, so I'm both partly a pessimist, partly an optimist. Things can get worse. But um, I do believe with Martin Luther King that the arc of justice moves in, in the right direction. But we need to help it. It doesn't just move. We need to help it. I wrote the book, The Price of Principle, to try to stimulate debate and discussion. I thank you for putting me on the show to give me an opportunity to speak to your audience about that. Well, Alan Dershowitz, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you all for joining Alan Dershowitz, me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Mm -hmm.